0: Tell me why did Christ have to die on a cross? I guess for all I seen. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's ah, (laughs) I guess. Yeah, I don't know if it's not, you know. But I go to church every Sunday, (laughs) still. Yeah. Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. I think. Because it's where, I'll say supposedly, because I'm not a uh, firm believer in the whole deal. I think it's because uh, that's where Jesus Christ was, uh, his last minutes where we were there. supposed to symbolize what he, I guess, he gave for you and I, whatever. Well, I really wouldn't be in a position to answer that because I'm not Christian, so I really wouldn't know why it would be important to Christians, but I would assume that it would be symbolic of his love for, for people
1: and his love for God.
0: Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. Because um, according to Christianity, Jesus is the Savior, so that's where he was supposedly murdered, so that would be the focal point of where the Savior died. Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. Honestly, I don't know. They believe that we shouldn't have, what's the word, idols, and yet they build these things after God. You know, I read in the Bible that God doesn't want us to have idols or stuff like that. and I just see that as hypocrisy. I'm not really big on religion, honestly. How does Christ dying on a cross save us from our sins? To be honest, I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why. It, I don't know why he, you know, what that would, that would have to do with saving us, but. I think if you believe in it, then as a person it'll strengthen you to want to do what the Bible says and try and make you live your life in accord with those standards. And if you live with those standards, then you'll probably be a better off person. Why did he die on the cross? To save uh, save the souls of people. he, he um, killing their hair, killing their hair. It symbolizes what he went through over the course of his lifetime. Um, he was resurrected, and um, I don't know that's why we—that's why I believe in Jesus and God, and uh, that's why I'm a good Catholic, I guess. Why is the cross important in Christianity? Well, I would guess because Christ was killed on one. You know, I respect the fact that it's an important symbol of belief for others, and I do think it's a symbol that holds a great deal of power but uh, personally I'm not sure how much it means to me at this point in my life. Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity. Why the cross? I mean that's just the number one symbol. I mean that's why he was, that's how he, he died on and I mean it's just when you think of Christianity you think of Jesus dying on the cross. A lot of people have a sense of hope at least, I mean, because of the promises that he made, so at least that's something. There's something for everyone to uh, believe in, that he was there, that he rose, that he was something important to people. Tell me why the cross is so significant to Christianity. Well, it's th- where Jesus was crucified, so for Christianity it symbolizes that you can be saved because Jesus died for your sins. (laughs) Tell me why the cross is significant to Christianity.
1: You wouldn't have salvation without the cross.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, the cross symbolizes the blood of Christ. Alright, you have to have that in order to wash away the sins and transgressions of mankind. The cross is where it all begins because Christ uh,
0: lived, he loved. he left, he cried, he ate, he slept, he died. He rose
1: in three days with all power, but he had to go to the cross for all of that to, to transpire so that we have life and we can have it more abundantly. So there's no other way but the cross. There's no other way but the cross. There's
0: no other way but the cross.
1: Christianity and the cross in our culture, when you look across it, you find that there is really no consensus of what it means and uh, a lot of confusion. You know, if you were to go ask your neighbor or a fellow student or a coworker a question this week, and it's something you might want to try, you might get some interesting answers. The question that you might want to pose to them is, what is the real problem that we face today? And I can guarantee you, you will get a, a myriad of answers to that question. Some would say, well, what the real problem is that we face are international problems. We have conflicts among nations. We have rogue nations like Iran or Russia, or someone even say the United States. Or maybe it's radical terrorism. Other people would say, well, the real issue that we face are national problems. When you look around our country, we have a problem with violence, and even violence that's now getting into our schools. Uh, There is overspending. There is greed. Uh, We have incompetent leaders in the political realm and in the business realm. Others might say, well, the real issue that we face are family problems, uh, the breakdown of the family as we see it today, uh, the rise of divorce and broken marriages, the whole set of issues that come with the burden of being a single parent. Others would say, well, the real issue that we face today are individual problems, problems with drugs and addiction and the violence that goes with that, the problem of pursuing after pleasure or perhaps prosperity or power. Richard Taylor makes a very incisive observation. He says, there's very few serious thinkers in the world would deny that the human race is sick. This sickness is analyzed and probed and diagnosed daily in magazines and newspapers and talk shows around the world. People are doing things daily which they know they should not be doing, which augments life's confusion, disrupts homes and society, and adds to the sum total of humanity's pain. So the real question is, how do we solve that? And Taylor summarizes what many people would say. How do you solve it? By training and reconditioning, says the behaviorist. You solve it by altering the environment, says the sociologist. You solve it by better education, says the teacher. By better laws, says the legislator. By more money, says the politician. By improved health, says the physician. Uh, By self-understanding, says the psychiatrist. But you know, if you're going to solve something, solving something always begins with the proper diagnosis. And when the Bible looks at the real issue facing us today and all of these other issues and problems that come with it, the Bible declares that all of them can be traced to one ultimate problem, and that problem can be summed up in one word that has three letters in it, and that is the word sin. Sin at its core just simply means that we go our own way rather than God's way. And the reality is that all of us have chosen to do that. And all of us have been touched by sin, going our own way rather than God's way. And sin, when it touches us, leaves a stain. It leaves a stench in our own hearts and in our own lives. Now, my aim today is to not talk about sin. My aim is to talk about God's solution to the sin problem, which is the cross. And in many ways, what we're going to do as a church today is to go back to our roots, and it's good from time to time to go back to our roots. And so what I want to do is I want to spend some time probing the cross Why is the cross significant? You know, the cross in the New Testament, in New Testament theology, is really the centerpiece of everything. The cross is not a message. It is the message, the centerpiece to New Testament theology. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul wrote these words. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What is of first importance? What is the centerpiece? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And then in Galatians 6.14, Paul said, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it never be in my life in any way that I'm bragging about something, just bragging about something, except for one thing. If I'm going to brag, I want to brag about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the centerpiece of New Testament theology. And men and women, when when you probe the cross, it has the potential to do a number of things. It has the potential to revolutionize your life. Knowing that you are forgiven is the most wonderful thing in all of the world. When we probe the cross, it has the potential to invigorate our joy in life. You see, we have an opportunity to be free from all of our failures an opportunity to be free from all of our guilt. And that brings joy. And when we probe the cross, we have an opportunity to catalyze our gratitude. And men and women, that's something, if we're going to be honest, we need recatalyzed from time to time. It means that when we probe the cross, despite whatever circumstances we may be experiencing and the things that may be happening to us, When we probe the cross, the cross becomes a fresh cause for celebration in our life. And so I think it is a good thing for us to go back to our roots. And so today it may revolutionize your life. It may invigorate your joy. I guarantee you it will catalyze your gratitude Now, as we probe the cross, my plan is is very simple. I I, want to just look at two things today. The first thing I want to look at is the reality of the cross. And the second thing I want to look at are some ramifications of the cross. So that's where we're going to go as we probe the cross. I want to begin by looking at the reality of the cross. And in order to do that, we need to take a journey through the gospel of Mark, and chapter number 15, so if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You can take that Bible, and the back portion of that, you can turn to page 41, and you will be at Mark chapter 15. Now, there's way too much here in this chapter for us to deal with this morning, but I want to look at two things out of this chapter. In verses 16 to 20, I want us to look at some prior events to the cross, And then in verses 21 to 39, I want us to look and probe the gruesome cross itself. So we're going to begin by looking at some prior events that were happening, and I'd like to read verses 16 to 20 and invite you to follow along as I read from Mark 15. Verse 16 says, The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort, And they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him now as you look at those verses you need to write over the top of those verses the words for you he went through these events for you by the way before the events of of verses 16 to 20 there were some illegal hearings a series of illegal hearings that took place There was a scourging that took place, which in scourging they would basically beat you to within an inch of your life. That happened even prior to verses 16 to 20. A couple of interesting things I just want to pull out of of these verses. You'll notice in verse 17, they dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Now, the thorn bushes there grow thorns that are more than an inch long and we've even had one put together here at Wildwood and you can imagine when you have inch long thorns and someone takes that little makeshift crown and just pushes it down on your head that there would be stinging pain that would come from that and they did that of course to mock him but I want you to understand something that there was some divine symbolism in that little event that took place Because if you go back to the book of beginnings in the Bible, to the book of Genesis in chapter 3, you find out that thorns were a symbol of a curse that God had to put on the world and mankind because of his rebellion and because of his sin. So I want you to see that when those thorns were placed on his head, it was a picture by God of taking the curse that had been put on mankind and placing it on Jesus placing it on him so that he could deliver us from the curse that had fallen on us second thing i want you to notice in these verses is in verse 19 where it says they kept beating his head with a reed a stick and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him in the gospel of john it adds they were also striking him with their hands Now, what is graphically interesting about this verse is these are all in the original language, what are called imperfect verbs. That simply means that they were doing this over and over to him. You remember the whole Roman cohort was there. And over and over again, they took turns doing these things to him, beating him on his head with a stick, spitting on him kneeling and bowing before him, striking him with their hands. He went through all that for you. And then you come to the end of verse 20, and there's just this little phrase, and they led him out to crucify him. And, you know, you read that phrase uh, and it's so emotionless. It feels so nonchalant in the sterile environment in which we live today where we don't have a heart emotional reaction to the idea of crucifixion in a cross. But it was not so on that day. That was a spine-tingling statement to say. And they led him out to crucify him, which leads us to the gruesome cross that we want to look at more closely. And I'd like to read, beginning with the last part of verse 20, down through verse 39, I invite you to follow along as I read. And they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear or to carry his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And it was a third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, This is the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him and wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross." In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, "Truly, this man was the son of God. And we must, men and women over those verses, write the words for you." You know, when it talks about at the end of verse 20 how they led him out, they led him out by the common route that they would do when they were crucifying, and that is they would take a long route to the place that they were going to crucify Jesus. The reason why they would take a long route is they wanted any crucifixion to be a lesson, they wanted any crucifixion to elicit fear from people. And so they took the long route. And we learn from the Gospel of John that Jesus started out carrying his cross. By the way, the cross that we have here is very life-sized. And it may have been that he started out carrying the entire thing. It may have been he was just carrying the crossbeam, but the crossbeam in that day would would weigh some 100-plus pounds, and they're going the long route. And Jesus had been brutalized. Jesus' strength was sapped. He was exhausted. He wasn't able to carry it. And so, by imperial authority, as it says in verse 21, they pressed into service a man from Cyrene. Cyrene was in North Africa in the area that we now call Libya, an individual who had come unaware that there was going to be a crucifixion just going into the city, and suddenly this man finds himself carrying the cross of a condemned man on the way to the place of execution. And the place of execution, you'll notice in verse 22, was a place they called Golgotha. Golgotha literally means the place of the skull. So they went to the skull to crucify him. In Latin, the word skull is calvaria, and that is really where we get the word calvary from, just from the word skull. And so they go to the skull place. And you'll notice it says there in verse 23 something very interesting. It says, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, myrrh was an anesthetic. And what we see here in verse 23 was not a Roman custom. It's not what the Romans did. In fact, we learn from the rabbinic writings that this was a custom that was developed among the Jews for those who were crucified It was an act of charity that some of the rich women in the culture had decided to do. And they based their action on Proverbs 31.6 where it says, give strong drink to him who is perishing. And so the Jews had this custom when someone was going to be crucified, they wanted to give to him an anesthetic. And I want you to notice it says in verse 23, but Jesus did not take it. Why? Because Jesus was on a mission for you. And then it says in verse 24, and they crucified him. Four words in English, three in the original, very short very simple. To the people of the day, there was no need of explaining that because for them to hear those words would bring an emotional reaction to them. Crucifixion in the cross was very graphic then. It holds very little emotion now. So in some ways, when we say, and they crucified Him, it's important for us just to understand what that meant. The cross and crucifixion was horrific, horrific. Think of the most horrible thing that you have ever seen, and it was far worse than that. Those who were cultured did not even want to say the word cross. It was against Roman law for any citizen of Rome to be crucified because it was so horrific. The writer Cicero described crucifixion And the cross is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. It was once said that even the mere word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. The historian Josephus said that the cross was the most wretched of deaths. Now, it is not my plan to glorify in the gore of the cross, but I think it's important for us to have a little sense of how people would respond to a statement, they crucified Him. If I were going to just summarize the cross in two words, it would be the words excruciating pain, excruciating pain. Pain. You see, they would take seven-inch spikes and they would nail those seven-inch spikes into to your wrist area and put you on that cross and then they would take your feet and cross them and put another seven-inch spike into that. There's no anesthesia when you're doing that. And then you would be on the cross and you would be hanging virtually by your limbs. And as you would do that, your chest would fill with fluids and you would have a need to try to catch your breath, and so what you would be forced to do is to push up on your feet that had been nailed just to get you high enough to catch a breath for a moment, and then you would drop back down. It was slow torture. Dale Foreman has written a book on crucifixion. Here's part of what he wrote. He said, in the distended parts of the body As you're up there on the cross, more blood flows through the arteries than can be carried back into the veins. Hence, too much blood finds its way from the aorta into the head and stomach, and the blood vessels of the head become pressed and swollen. The general obstruction of circulation, which ensues, causes intense excitement, exertion, and anxiety more intolerable than death itself. Being put on a cross was respiratory torture because you would go through this cycle of desperation and panic over and over again. When someone would hang on a cross, there would be anguish from torn tendons and dislocations of shoulders. There would be cramping. There would be severe inflammation. You are an incredibly discomforting body position, you would have a throbbing headache that is so far beyond anything you've ever experienced. And then you go through all of this, and there would be this burning thirst that you would have, because you were going to be up there all day. The death that would come from a cross was a combination of blood loss and dehydration and exposure and exhaustion and the trauma of pain. Staggering, staggering, and he went through that for you. When you come to verse 25, we find out that this whole thing started at the third hour. That was 9 a.m. And so for hours, he's going through this overwhelming physical pain as he can't breathe and then he has to drop, and then he can't breathe, and he has to drop. And to that overwhelming physical pain, you have to add in emotional pain. We see that in verses 30 and 32. I mean, he is actually being crucified, men and women, in a thoroughfare, it'd be like it happening, you know, on Main Street in Norman, Oklahoma. And he's hanging there naked, and that is humiliating to be hanging in public naked. And multiple people are passing by because that's the way the Romans wanted it to be. And so you go through that emotional pain along with the physical pain, and then you have these dignified religious leaders who are there to gloat over you in verses 31 and 32. And they were mocking him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. They don't even really dignify him with directly addressing him. And then to remember that he went through that for three hours for you. And then, if you look at verse 33, something happened. It began at noon and it went till 3 p.m. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. This was at the brightest time of the day, men and women. And if you can just get a feel for this, this supernatural darkness descends on the scene. And there's this ominous hush that takes place. Dale Foreman draws a vivid picture of what this was like. He says, Jesus hung on a rough-hewn cross. Blood ran down His legs. A crown of thorns was perched at a crazy tilt of His bowed head. He'd been beaten by the Roman soldiers and nailed more than three hours before to a hideous wooden cross. Every few seconds, his lungs filled with blood. He gasped for breath, his body convulsed. With great effort, he arched his back to gain enough air to speak. Those nearby leaned forward to catch his last words. Whom would he curse? The hated high priest Caiaphas? Pilate, the Roman governor, the traitor, Judas, each could expect to be cursed. It was normal for the crucified to leave this life with hate on their lips, so why would this holy man be any different? And then he spoke. What did he say? Those on the fringes asked the people closer up, what was it that he said? Everyone wanted to know whom he had cursed. What were his last words? But he had not cursed. Instead, he had cried out an awful and unsettling question. Quoting Psalm 22, he had said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, he had experienced physical pain, men and women. He had experienced emotional pain. But now he was experiencing the ultimate pain of all time. The darkness was a picture of judgment. And what was happening is that an avalanche of sin was being poured out on the person of Jesus Christ. The sin not only for everybody who lived to that time, but the sin of everybody who would live for all time. And all of the lies and all of the deceit and all of the dishonesty and all of the violence and all of the murders and all of the greed and all of the envy and all of the gossip and slander that cuts people and all of the arrogant pride and all of the injustice for all of time was being placed on the person of Jesus Christ. That putrid potion of hatred and perversion and deception was being put on one who himself was pure. And God the Father turned his back on his son. Sin, men and women, is a problem for each one of us. All of us have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. None of us are left out of this equation. All of us, I don't care who we are, have failed to do what we know we should have done. All of us, it doesn't make any difference who we are, have failed to do what we know we could have done. And we're all stained with sin as human beings. And sin carries with it a penalty. And that penalty is separation from God. It is the ultimate death. Being separated from God for all eternity. And that penalty, which you and I earned, was being placed onto the person of Jesus Christ. And he was experiencing here, right now, the horror of separation from God for eternity. He was experiencing the bitterness of total isolation, and he did that, men and women, for you. And then you come to verses 37, 38, and 39. Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. The veil of the temple was torn and two from top to bottom. The centurion, this seasoned veteran who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. See, the real problem that we have as a culture and as a people, the ultimate problem we have is a problem of sin. And the only answer to sin is is the cross of Jesus Christ, because we can never knew, do enough good to compensate for the things that we've done wrong. We cannot do it. The answer to the ultimate problem is the cross. Now, when I, when I, when I look at the cross, two things just stand out to me. The first one is His pain. See, it's really beyond any of our abilities to understand really what he went through. The physical pain, the emotional pain, the incredible ultimate pain of complete isolation from God forever. The pain of all of that, he endured for me. And he endured that for you. So when I look at the cross, the first thing that stands out is his pain. The the second thing that stands out to me is his love. What held him on the cross? Was it the strength of those seven-inch nails? Was it the fear of the soldiers? It was actually his cords of love that he had for you. You see, you were on His mind before you were even born. You were on the mind of God from the recesses of all eternity. Just was thinking of, of you. Why the cross? Why was the cross necessary? You know, a number of years ago, I shared... Uh, The words to one of my favorite songs. It's a, a song called, Who Killed Jesus? Who Killed Jesus Many Years Ago? Who is guilty of a crime so low? Why did he have to die? What is the reason why? Who killed Jesus? I would like to know. Was it Roman soldiers with their tools of war, driving nails through hands that did no wrong, mocking, abusing, crowning him with thorns? All the evidence is very strong. Was it Pontius Pilate? He was governor, trying to decide the case that day. and Finding that the Savior had no fault his own, was he guilty when he turned away? Was it Hebrew children proud of who they were? trying and, and actually shouting, crucify him at their king, trading their Messiah for a common thief, turning down the kingdom that he could bring? Who killed Jesus many years ago? Who is guilty of a crime so low? Why did he have to die? What is the reason why? Who killed Jesus, I would like to know. When I think of Jesus and the way he died, How upon him all my sin was laid. All the other people fade away from view. It's for me the sacrifice was made. I no longer wonder anymore. I have found what I've been searching for. My sin demanded hell. On him the judgment fell. I am guilty. Now it's plain to see that it was really me. See, knowing, men and women, that you are forgiven is the most wonderful thing in all of the world. David wrote these words in Psalm 32 two, and he said, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Now, as we said, we wanted to look at the reality of the cross, and then we also wanted to look at some ramifications of the cross, and it's almost a little comical to say some ramifications. I mean, we could be here for weeks. We could be here for months. Yes, we could be here for years talking about ramifications of the cross. But I want to highlight two ramifications of the cross. The first ramification is this. We should believe in him. Men and women, that's the response we ought to have to believe in him. And believing in him involves a recognition of who he was, the perfect one, and what he did for us on that cross. And believing in him involves a clear choice that we must make. All of us must make a life choice. Are we going to count on our own feeble, paltry efforts to try to compensate for our own rebellion and sin, or are we going to count on the cross of Jesus Christ? The first ramification is we should believe in Him. The New Testament tells us that without believing in Him, black darkness is reserved for us. And so I don't want anybody to walk away. I don't want anyone to even leave this service today. I don't want anyone to leave the radio if they're listening to this message somewhere. Or if they're just reading it, to walk away from the written words without believing in Him. To turn to Him and to make a choice and to say, you know what, I want to count on what Christ has done for me. I want to believe in that. I want to rest in that. That's what I need in my life. And you can do that. You just tell your heart to the heart of God where you're coming from. That's all I did. So the first ramification is we should believe in him. Here's the second ramification that I think is so vitally important, and that is that we should live for him. And those of you who have believed in him, is it true right now that you're living for him? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died on their behalf. Men and women, that means that when we go through our week, part of our focus needs to be on the tremendous privilege that we have to live for him. to pledge allegiance to him. A great majority of us, when we were growing up and we went to school, we would do every day the pledge of allegiance to the flag. And you know what? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ every day, you ought to be pledging allegiance to him and honoring him. And say, you know, I know I'm not going to do it perfectly. I know I'm going to make mistakes, God. But this week... This month, this year, I want to live for you. I want to honor you with my life, with the choices that I make. I want to honor your commands. I want to honor your directives from this scripture. We should believe in him, and we should live for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for a day like this, that we need to go back to our roots, we need to get back to the core of what everything is all about. It all comes back to the cross. This is the centerpiece of everything that we believe in. And Father, I would pray for any who would be hearing these words that they would not let one more hour go by if they have yet to believe and trust in Jesus Christ without doing that. I plead with them, I plead with you, Do not delay in believing in Christ. And then, Father, for those of us who do know you and have believed in you, we want to, in a fresh way, pledge allegiance to you and say we want to live for you. Maybe we haven't been, but that doesn't mean we can't get back on that focus in our life to want to honor Jesus Christ because he bled, he died, he loved me. It's the least I could do in light of what he has done for me. We just pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.